Good evening, everybody. Good to be together. And uh, yeah, one of the greatest expressions of God's love is God's word. Like, we like to think of love as touching an emotional coordinate, and it does and it should. Um, if, if, our, if our engagement with God doesn't move our hearts, the Lord says, love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, then it's missing something. But if it, if it doesn't lean into that place of strength, of word, of promise, and, and literally feed us from God's word. So one of the signs of God's love is God's word. So we're going to look at um, Jesus talking about God's word as an enduring foundation, a lasting foundation. Matthew chapter 7, we're coming towards the uh, climax of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to the reading in a moment. I remember it was just as lockdown was sort of like coming in, we're back in 2020, the bad old days, and uh, we're coming out of that hectic, we're just on level five, and then we were allowed sort of like the, you know, the, the little run around between six and nine o'clock in the morning in the middle of winter, which in Cape Town meant between eight and nine in the morning. And then just after that, it went down another level and, and the hour restriction went, and we were all dying to get outside, and the mother of all Cape winter storms broke in Cape Town on the Monday. So Uncle Cyril told us that on the Sunday, well, we can all go and play. And on the Monday, it was like carnage. don't know if anyone else remembers this. And uh, so eventually on the Wednesday, my buddy and I, we could go take a slow ride on the Atlantic seaboard. The reason it was a slow ride is because we hadn't trained for three months. And so, but as we rode, we literally found parts of the beach up on the mountainside above us, like seaweed. You know, if you're going there to, you know, through Bantry Bay, and then, you know, you keep going towards Lundudno and whatever, and there's that lovely Atlantic drive. And parts that belonged on the beach were like five, ten meters up in the mountain. There was seaweed, like dur, in the mountain. And you're thinking, like, what kind of storm was this? And there were other things that should have been there that were simply missing, like parts of the parking lot had gone missing. And I was reminded of a storm that coincided with the 2004 tsunami that hit the coast of KZN. We remember the Christmas Day event, and we had friends who had the original farmer's fishing shack on Willard Beach on Belito. Now, for Cape Townians, that doesn't mean much, but it's, it's like position A on sort of like the Natal North Coast. And, and so you had to walk down these stairs, and you, know, you parked up at the top of what was essentially a sand dune, and then you walked down, and like almost on the water's edge was this one house that uh, there was like... You're camping probably like the height of those speakers off the beach. Everyone else had all their rules, but this thing had been there so long that it was still allowed to be there. 
And so there we are. And then we went back. And when we came to the beach, there was just water. Like where the house had once stood, there was like proper foundations, like probably 10% of the foundations were still there. But other than that, the entire house had been taken by the sea. Even the land that was there had just been sand. And so no matter how big the foundations were, all the foundations were simply undermined, swept out to sea, and they couldn't say that is our piece of land because that simply was no longer land. It had become sea. Now, I was back there when Cindy ran the comrades, went down to the beach, and slowly over the years, the sand has gone back, the beach covering has grown down, and there's a piece of land where the house once stood. But guess what? Nobody's building there anymore. So, and you know, so the poor, they face the challenge every winter in Cape Town. But people with million dollar views have abandoned their homes, or their homes have abandoned them. I'm not quite sure which. because they couldn't withstand the storm. And the truth is, no matter how expensive you buy or carefully you build, if your foundation is misplaced, it cannot stand. And Jesus brings that idea forcefully in Matthew 7, verse 24, and he says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. It seems the teachers of the law were guessing. So Jesus uses this metaphor, this picture, maybe a parable, although it's not introduced so much as a parable. But Jesus is the master of imagery and planting thoughts in our minds that the Holy Spirit can kind of step on like a landmine and, poof, you know, there goes something more. And the first thing that Jesus' picture presupposes is that we're all building something with our lives. You may not think about it, but you're actually building something with your life. Each one of us is accumulating, building materials. We're constructing something that whether we like it or not needs to last forever. Like the gift of life does not end in death if you have a biblical worldview. 
we are not just here for these years. Jesus treated this life, hear me on this, as a temporary assignment of eternal significance. And for you and me, that's also true. This life is a temporary assignment of eternal significance, but we're using this life to gather the building materials that are meant to last forever. And what we build with our lives, our loves, our families, you know, careers, studies, vocation, um, marriage, in our communities, there's a sense in which that is a legacy on earth and that's meaningful and right. But there's a sense in which, as Jesus says, make friends for eternity, invest in eternity, use what you got now to prepare yourself for a life beyond this life. So each of us are building something with our lives. And so the idea is the sooner we realize that, the better, because then we can consciously begin to think about what am I building with my life? Another metaphor might be, think of your life as a blank check. Every day, you're signing it to someone. Who are you giving your life to? Maybe screen time will tell you. Who am I giving my life to? It's like a blank check. Who am I giving my life to? I've got all these hours, moments, all, actually not very many. And every day I'm assembling something that makes my life count for eternity or not. And so realizing that I'm building something, that every day is a brick to lay down, or maybe a brick thrown away. I'm building something with my life. It's meant to last forever. Secondly, if you're building, then you've got to identify your foundation, a foundation, that groundwork of everything else, and it can be the foundation of a society or whatever it is that this, everything else depends upon this. You know, sometimes in order to build up, you first got to look down. You want to go up, you first got to look down. You've got to look at what you're building on. It doesn't matter how expensive the building materials are that you've managed to get hold of. Before you put them on anything, you've got to work out what you're putting them on. It's interesting, just listening to some social commentary the other day, People are realizing, probably more than ever at the moment, Gen Z, that we're needing strong foundations. Like we're watching generations ahead of us, and they seem to be like completely at sea, like blown and tossed by the winds and the waves of whatever fad is coming along. And it's almost as if faith is like trending, but like, I mean, hardcore faith. Like believing something that matters. And people are losing confidence in a rationalist or humanist secular worldview. Not only can it not explain vast realms of their own reality, probably the most devastating thing is that humanism cannot deliver on its promises. That you'll be amazing 
Our suicide rates amongst our celebrities are higher than they've ever been because the success the world promises is so devastatingly empty and tragic. So people are seeing through the contradictions of the create your own meaning movement. You know, we've all been told we can, we can just, we, we can create everything. We can even create our own meaning. We can create our own identity. Guys, creating identity is a burden too heavy for us to bear. It's a gift God gives you, where you were born, who you were born to, what your family is, what your gender is. It's a gift God gives you. Deciding that actually you're going to take that burden onto yourself build your own world, is becoming a burden too heavy to bear. If everyone is free to create their own definitions of truth, of identity, of right and wrong, well then nothing is true, and nothing is right, and hey, nothing is wrong. And that's wrong, right? You can quote me on that. Like, if, if nothing is wrong, then that's wrong, right? Okay. And the interesting thing is, while some people are losing faith, other people are desperate to discover it. And in Jesus, he's offering us something firm. He's offering us his words. Now, I want to be clear. When Jesus says, if you put, take these words of mine and put them into practice, he has said earlier in the same talk that he has not come to abolish the law, but to satisfy it, to complete it, to fulfill it. Not even the least little stroke of a pen. Literally, yacht or tittle, which is like the you know, the, the tiny little punctuation breathing marks that they used to put on the ancient text is going to disappear. So what I'm, this is not advocating what some people call red-letter Christianity. Have you heard of that? So, you know, you, you get some Bibles in which the words of Jesus are printed in red. And so... You kind of take the words of Jesus and you say, now these are super inspired. These, this is the real Bible inside the Bible. The rest is a little bit like the, you know, the, the orange peel. Unless you go to Holiday Club, you don't eat the orange peel. You eat the orange. You don't chew the coffee grind, you drink the coffee. Okay, there we go. Now... And, and, and so the rest of the Bible is kind of regarded as, you know, not as important as the words of Jesus. Now, Jesus is supreme revelation. He is the capital Word of God. But the Word of God tells us that the Word of God, in other words, Scripture itself, is utterly part of His own teaching. So don't let anyone come with a clever wedge between Jesus and your Bible. I ask you, how do you get to Jesus without it? So when Jesus says, whoever hears these words are mine, he's including the whole counsel of God, the words of God. Does that make sense? 
And people are starting to get Jesus' point. That we have to identify our foundations and that we have to question the dodgy ones. The ones that can't stand the weight. Why? Because a time of testing will come. Notice that how Jesus describes the storm of the wise man is literally repeated word for word as the storm that the foolish man faces. The rains came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and the house stood or the house did not stand. The difference was not in the storm. Our foundations will be tested, laid bare, either by the storms of life or by judgment day. And in the storm, the appearances don't count. Foundations do. And we've been through a storm. And maybe you're in a storm. Maybe there's a struggle going on and it's, and it's tough and it's demanding. And the reality is, we often, when we find ourselves struggling in those moments, we want to blame the severity of the storm in, instead of examine the integrity of the foundation. We go, bro, if you had been hit by my storm, you'd also be washed away and nothing would be standing. That's not what Jesus says. Like both of them get hit by the exact same storm. In the storm, appearances don't count. Your foundation is what will carry. And when we find ourselves rooted in the person and the words of Jesus, instead of insecurity comes deep trust. Instead of fear is compassion. Instead of self-concern is a heart for others. Instead of isolation and withdrawal is community and engagement. Instead of frustration and anger is a contented spirit. You see, when the foundations are right, the house will stand. So testing will come, and in some ways testing is a gift, isn't it? Because when I've got dodgy foundations, then I still have time in this life to fix them. I still have the opportunity to put them right. But surely the greatest point of Jesus' picture here as he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount is that the words of Jesus are the only sure foundation on which to build your life. You know, the words of Jesus have literally made history. And that's got a double meaning, and I mean the double meaning. The words of Jesus have made history. They've been recorded for history, yes, but they've exerted such power that they have literally shaped the history of the world. H.G. Wells, a historian and novelist, wrote a, a book called The Outline of History, as well as many others. And, you know, they're always trying to work out, historians are always trying to work out, why do I record this guy and not that guy? 
You know, why do I record this life and not that life? This politician and not that one? And their test is this. What did they leave behind? What did they leave to grow? Did this person help others think about new ideas that persisted after they were gone? Were they a fork in the road for history, basically? And he says this, by this test, Jesus stands first by a hundred miles. Like there's just nobody else in human history. Nicky Gumbel from Alpha says, when you listen to the words of Jesus, they are not just compelling, they are actually the kinds of words you'd expect God to say. Uh, renowned historian and philosopher Will Durant, who won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, wrote an 11-volume thing you can read for your bedtime stories called The Story of Civilization. And his observation as he looks at Rome, the Roman Empire and everything, and those who are doing the Daniel series will uh, know why that's important. He looks at what happened to Rome during the first two centuries of the Christian faith, and he says what happened is quite astonishing. Another author summarizes his volumes and volumes and says this, There is no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians, influenced by Jesus, then scorned and oppressed by a succession of emperors and kings, bearing all trials with fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building old order, while their enemies generate chaos, fighting the sword with a word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has known. Caesar and Christ met in the arena, and Christ won. Now, this guy isn't a believer. He's not writing as a Christian. He's writing as a historian, assessing the influence of Jesus who had more power, who had more influence, whose legacy is greater, he says, Jesus by 100 miles compared to Caesar, whichever Caesar. Durant then goes on to say that a few simple men, glad he didn't say simple women, he'd be in big trouble, should appear in one generation to have invented so powerful and appealing personality. In other words, He's now commenting on whether or not Jesus, popular idea is Jesus is fictional, and there were some clever fishermen who came up with the idea of Jesus. This is his comment. That these guys should have invented so powerful, appealing, and personality, so lofty and ethics, so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible and improbable, improbable than anything recorded in the Gospels itself. In other words, for people to invent Jesus would be the biggest miracle of all. Sadly, both Wells and Durant tragically missed the point. Neither of them followed Jesus. They could see his impact. They could see how profound his words were. They could see, but we've, we've got an idea that we can pick and choose with Jesus. We can take some of the things he said that we liked, but we can ignore him. Jesus said, follow me. 
You only build on the words of Jesus by doing them. Notice the difference between the wise and the foolish man. Jesus doesn't say, whoever hears these words of mine, and then in contrast, whoever ignores these words of mine. So Wells and Durant and others, they terribly impressed when they hear the ideas of Jesus. Jesus says, you're still building on sand. You've actually got to learn to do them. I'm in danger until I start doing what he says. And the first step that that's going to take is to actually take time to learn. Welcome, ladies. And understand his words. Like, like, like you actually have to go. And the second thing is going to trust him. So let me wrap up with these. First, learn and understand his words. Secondly, trust him. We live in a world with relentless bombardment of ideas. The average person receives more information in a day than people 150 years ago receive in a lifetime. That's just like hectic. Like how much information can you process? You've just learned to let it wash over you, disappear, and go on. In advertising, AI consumer profiling, you know, they're not even just... Relying on the algorithms, they're now getting AI to train the algorithms so that they can profile you, so they can get smarter at baiting you for whatever product they want you to consume. Things that are redirecting us, keeping our attention elsewhere. It's going to take serious intentionality to build your life on the words of Jesus. Because if you're going to do them, you first have to hear them. You first have to actually make time to put yourself under and inside his words. The Psalm 1 says, Blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of mockers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they are reflecting all the time, day and night. They are like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season. Your leaf doesn't wither. Whatever you're going to do ultimately will carry God's blessing and prosperity. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff. The wind just blows them away. They can't stand. And so, if I am going to build on the words, I need to know them. Like, seriously, guys, you can't just hope that by being broadly in a Christian space, somehow you're going to know enough to do the Jesus life. Daily, training ourselves to read, to pray the word, Talk to God about his word. Read it, study it, memorize it. And this is not just for like old people. I'd memorized 50 chapters of the Bible by the time I was 25. That's spending your time well. Like at least... And I didn't do that because I was spiritual. I did that because I was so unspiritual. In other words, I was so inclined 
to get caught up in a hundred other things, that unless I was absolutely intentional about giving myself to God's Word, I would find myself literally wasting my life. And so out of my own distractedness and ADHD and whatever else has since been diagnosed, I had to give my mind something to feed on or else it would have fed on rubbish. What are you feeding on? What are you giving your hours to? You know, to do that, I literally had to take about 20 minutes every day of my life, not just reading my Bible, but memorizing it. And I did that for about eight years. 20 minutes a day, memorizing my Bible. 50 chapters and a whole truckload more verses. Very intentional, building a foundation. What are you doing with God's word? And if you're going to engage in his word, like I've, I've gone back to old school. So like I tried using technology for my quiet time, you know, because you've got all these options. You've got these, you can check the, like, you know, you can literally check a Greek word or look at the construction or compare a dozen different translations if you're on technology. But, you know, we're spending so much time in front of a screen. I'm just like, I'll get back and do my research at another time. Just give me a paper Bible and give me a handwritten journal and let me spend some time with Jesus. And that's the only way I can keep concentrating. If I am going to use some media, it'll be like either worship music or soaking music in the background. That just reminds me why I'm sitting there in the first place. I'm trying to be super practical, guys. But we're not going to build our lives if we don't give our minds to the work. And then if you're going to do what he says, you're going to need to have to trust him because he says some pretty radical things. <laughs> he does. He calls us to love our enemies. You're going to have to trust him to do that. He calls us to forgive even when others are still behaving badly. You're going to have to trust him to do that. He calls us to be generous even when we haven't got much ourselves. You're going to have to trust him to do that. And in just about every single way, if you're going to put his words into practice, it's going to get personal. But, oh, man, what a great God to be personal with. Jesus says, if you remain in me, John 15, and my words abide, remain, live, are fully at home in you. Eventually you'll ask whatever you wish. It'll be given you. Now that's not a magician's conjuring trick to get what you want. It's an invitation to allow Jesus and his word to take ownership of you. And eventually what you find yourself asking God is inextricably linked to God's will and purpose for your life. And so Jesus is, in a sense, saying, follow me, do what I say. I won't let you down. Build your life on my words. 
I won't fail. They won't fail. Follow me.